Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Shrum, Director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornsite. With me is the Center's co-director, Mike Murphy. Hello. Uh, Today, we welcome some of our extraordinary spring fellows for the first discussion this semester of our Bully Pulpit series. Mike and I will question the fellows for about 45 minutes, and I'm sure Mike will throw in some opinions along the way, and then we'll put this up for audience questions. Let me introduce the fellows who are with us. Douglas Brinkley is the Catherine Sanoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He is a prolific writer on politics and public policy. His latest book is a monumental study of the origins of the environmental movement, and I'll get to that later. Jane Coaston is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Previously, she was the host of the opinion section's podcast, The Argument, and was a senior political reporter at Vox with a focus on conservatism and the GOP. Ron Galpern is the former controller and chief financial officer of the city of Los Angeles and was the first openly gay official in this city. Tim Miller was a political consultant and served as communications director for Jeb Bush 2016, and then was political director for Republican voters against Trump. He is now the Bulwark's writer at large and author of the best-selling book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. He joins us as the spring 2024 Bonnet Fellow. Two of our fellows couldn't be with us today. Michael Tubbs was the mayor of Stockton, who created innovative strategies to combat gun violence and homelessness and established mentorships for at-risk youth. He currently serves as a special advisor to Governor Newsom on economic mobility and opportunity. And Shannon Watts is the founder emerita of Moms Demand Action, which now has chapters in every state and 10 million supporters committed to gun safety and the prevention of mass shootings. She is the spring 2024 Barbara Boxer Fellow. We look forward to having both of them on campus and on future programs. Uh, So I'm going to start out with this. Tim, we are two days from the Iowa caucus and five days from the New Hampshire primary. In Iowa, Republican turnout for the caucus fell from over 180,000 in 2020 to 110,000 in 2024, which may reflect both brutal weather and a degree of disillusionment among Republican voters. Donald Trump did win over 50% of the vote, defeated the second-place Ron DeSantis by 30%, with Nikki Haley just a whisker behind. In theory, we're at the beginning of the GOP nominating process. But let me ask you this question. Are the Republican primaries already over? Yeah, thank you, Bob. Uh, We plotted this backstage, Mike, uh, so that we could rub in how much writer I've been about this than you um, when it comes to the uh, Republican primary. Uh, No, uh, it's over. Yeah, it was probably even over before it started. I don't don't wish that this was to be the case, but um, the only potential alternative option that anyone presents is Nikki Haley. And the theory of the case there is that Nikki Haley wins a surprise victory in New Hampshire, which I think is possible. Um, but that would happen on the backs of undeclared voters and one of the most moderate and college-educated Republican electorates in the country, probably the most. And that is just not a path to winning the Republican nomination. Uh, you know, and even if you look back at history, 
the best example, now I'll give Murphy a compliment, um, of the 99-2000 McCain campaign, and then he only goes on to win only other New England states, Michigan, that at the time had, had also had an open primary in his home state of Arizona, right? And, and, and Bush wins relatively handily. Obviously, it was more of a competition than we're going to have this time. Trump wins every demo in Iowa, Polk County, which is where Des Moines is. Trump wins 38 to 27 over DeSantis, an 11 point victory. If the entire state of Iowa was Polk County, Trump would have still won the largest victory in the history of the Republican Iowa caucus. Um, so, you know, it was not just the rurals, it's not just the evangelicals, even in the area where he should have been weaker, he won overwhelmingly. Uh, so it's depressing that the party decided that they want to get in line behind him, but that's just kind of the state, the state of affairs. Um, I do think that the voter turnout drop is, is notable. Hopefully it means that the excitement level is down for Trump. It possibly, like you said, it could have just been a weather situation. I think that's a data point to watch as we move forward. The other encouraging thing to watch, I think, is that the Nikki Haley voters seem very hostile to Trump, very hostile. So there's a possibility that once reality sinks in for many of them, that might end up helping Biden's ballot number in a couple months. So th- those are my big takeaways from Iowa. I'll chime in under the uh, under the old rule of one-sided, yet to respond to any gutter attacks you might have heard. <laughs> Yeah, the truth is, I mostly agree with Tim. I think there was a very long shot path to beat Trump. I wouldn't, sh- I wasn't sure who might bubble to the top to take that shot. It turned out to be Nikki. I think she bubbled to the top more based on the weakness of everybody else. Uh, and that involved an expectations bump out of Iowa, not winning it, but being second place, the challenger, winning New Hampshire, and then going on to win South Carolina. Two back to back losses. Only way to stop the steamroller. And she's done a magnificent job, starting with her salute to the Confederacy uh, back in uh, uh, South. Excuse me, in New Hampshire a few weeks ago, of screwing that up. So the expectations thing out of Iowa, weaker. The zombie DeSantis gets to stumble around, taking space for a little while. But it is really her lack of an ability to square on confront Trump, not in a Christie head-on way, but a time to make a change replacement way. Uh, that has really, really put her in trouble. Now she's in a fight about whether or not to debate in New Hampshire. The way McCain back in 2000, we got our original grip there, was that Bush had also blown off an early debate, insulting the sainted voters there. It's a very parochial state. There is some energy in the uh, old joke that the best campaign slogan in New Hampshire is screw Iowa. I think it's still possible uh, she can win the New Hampshire primary, mostly because Tim alluded to this. Over 45% of the voters in her are likely to be independents or even a few Democrats. So, you know, her problem is fundamental. She doesn't have enough Republicans. And while I think on paper she had the ability to bounce into a state where she won two governor's races, she's sure gotten in the way on that. And Trump's got a lot of cards uh, to play afterwards. So I think her, her long shot is becoming a super long shot. I think there's a good chance now she'll lose New Hampshire, which will end the race. And if she does, it could be an isolated fluke unless she can figure out South Carolina. And I'm just not seeing the toolkit from her. I've never been a big Nikki fan, which I've been clear about. But compared to Trump, she's Gandhi. So I've been for her. But I think she's uh, she's showing a lack of courage and ability to thread this needle correctly. And so I would not be surprised of all if a week from now, Trump is the lockdown nominee. He's close to that now. Doug, you want to weigh in on this? Just that I've growing up in the midwest i always had a bit of a romanticized feel about iowa and i still do uh you know anytime i've gone there for the iowa caucus i always get these indelible memories of the little towns and the people 
Um, and the great novelist Jack Kerouac used to say, Iowa, where they let the children be children. And I've been surprised and disappointed that the Democratic Party is just pulled out of Iowa. I mean, our Secretary of Agricultural Day, you know, Tom Vilsack, Democrat, Iowa. Uh, the great Senator Tom Harkin, who we are all friends with, or John Culver, Senator, with a Democratic Party just bailed on it. And I felt that. I knew it. It wasn't the right demographic for today's Democratic Party. But I went to Des Moines, probably October, and circulated doing a few things. And everybody was for Trump. Every person you met. And it wasn't the kind of cultish love of Trump. It was that there was a real feeling of anger towards the Democratic Party for not uh, really caucusing, not taking Iowa seriously. And I also grew up, when I said Midwest in Ohio, a town called Perrysburg. And I know many people that I went to high school in Wood County, but near, you know, rural, that voted Obama, voted Obama twice. And they stopped voting because Hillary Clinton never came to their district, never went to the local pizza place, never did the retail politics. So what's surprising me is how quickly the Democratic Party just threw away a potentially blue-purple state. It's red, red, red now. And it made me really think, where does the do, you know, Trump's going to win all the, you know, we know, go through the Great Plains states where he's going to win. What's on the table for Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is in the Midwest? And Wisconsin's the big, big, you know, the day-glow prize right now for the Democrats. Kamala Harris is going in there January 22nd to try to do a big speech on a, a women's movement about uh, bringing back Roe v. Wade and all that. I haven't seen her track yet in those ways, but she might. Um, but, you know, Michigan, you're seeing Biden trying to do anything to stop hemorrhaging there. Ohio's red, Indiana's red. Of course, Illinois is a, always a blue prize. The point being, I'm watching Iowa thinking, ah, that's not, he didn't just win the Iowa caucus. He just grabbed, you know, Iowa's done. It's no longer on the electoral map in the general election. And then he cut to New Hampshire coming up. And I, look, I don't think Nikki Haley's going to win there. But, so I'll make a, my prediction. I think she's going to do well coming second, but this is a Trump, Trump Republican party. There's no question about it. And so a lot of what we're doing now is you're going to get low ratings on following on on cable except for fox news because a lot of democrats don't want to stare at cnn or msnbc and watch trump score prize after prize as the calendar comes there's no joe biden and trump's rolling with momentum and then he does his courthouse you know um raps and gets more media attention and more uh it's becoming a very tough environment uh, for the democrats because nobody it seems to be able to know how to slow down the the Trump steamroller. Nikki Haley will be interesting. I did notice that she is on a short list of women that Trump might pick. I doubt it. He'll pick her, but you know, Steve Bannon and all are in, in Rand Paul or, you know, going, going, you know, a group of Republicans. So are never Nikki people. I think Trump will put her on a short list just to keep her on there, try to keep whatever her support is within the Republican family. Um, so they don't jump for one of these third party candidates. I'll be interested in New Hampshire to see. The play up in that part of the world that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gets in New Hampshire, uh, is he meaning just are people there disgruntled and would go to a third party candidate in a state like New Hampshire? What would the number of, let's say it is a mansion and West and, and, uh, Kennedy? I'm just fascinated of what kind of numbers these people are going to get. And I am by just saying 
there is no analogy when you're dealing with Trump because you can't consider him a, a former president. Really, there's the President's Club, all of them, even the bad ones, even James Buchanan, and then there's Trump. And Trump is playing on the outlaw tradition in America. He's Al Capone. He's, he loves being compared to gangsters and Al Capone. And, you know, you travel around America and you go to, like, gift shops all, and you can still see, like, artifacts of Billy the Kid and Al Capone and John Dillinger and people that take on the authorities. The reason the gangsters in Chicago in the 1920s became so popular, meaning Al Capone, is because of the restrictions of prohibition. People wanted their alcohol, Al Capone was providing it. And I don't know if we've caught up with what COVID means in this election, what the lockdown meant for small businesses, what's the psyche of of the nation where their kids had to go remote and, and all that, because I'm noticing as a history professor, this generation right now at universities are different than the others. There's an anger that they're putting up two old timers, Biden and Trump. They're not really in love with the third party candidate. And I don't know who's going to be able to stimulate, you know, the uh, youth activism. Young people do clear about climate change, but there's torn on some of um, Biden's policies and there's not a lot of youth enthusiasm. So Trump now, I, I don't know where he gets derailed. I'm looking for it if it happens in a, in, in a court, uh, but every, he, he seems to be part of that Roy Cohen school of kicked the, the legal case down the road and he has the supreme court ostensibly backing any action that happens before the election so the big question is how do you slow trump momentum down well i think we're going to get to the general in a few minutes but i want to keep talking about the republican party a little bit and i'm going to go to jane in a second but first i want to ask ron do you think this is over i mean you're an observer of all this stuff you've run for elective office yourself you've won elective office is this thing over unfortunately it uh, probably is Although what's kind of interesting is how much attention we actually pay to Iowa, because there were 108,000 Republican caucusers. This is out of 752,000 registered Republicans in the state. It's called a resounding victory for Donald Trump in that he won 51 percent, but he won basically a little more than half of 108,000 voters when all is said and done. And by the way, with 18 caucuses since 1972, Iowa has predicted correctly uh, when it comes to the Republican caucuses, only three of the 18 who actually went on to become president. And yet we think that this is the holy grail. By the way, New Hampshire is not a heck of a lot better when it comes to predicting uh, who's going to become president as well. Having said all of that, Trump has the momentum. He has a very passionate base. And uh, I don't see any trial or any conviction uh, necessarily derailing that. But uh, that's going to be very different when it comes to a general election. Jane, I want to do a follow-up, and then, Mike, maybe you want to throw in here and give your perspective, too. The Iowa caucus poll entry polls had some interesting and even startling statistics. 65% of caucus goers said that Biden's election was illegitimate. 63% said that even if Trump is convicted in a criminal case, he would still be fit to be president. And 81% said immigrants were poisoning the blood of our country. You spent a lot of time thinking, writing, and talking about the Republican Party and conservatism. What's happened to that party? What's happened to conservatism? And why have we reached the point of such intense polarization in this country? 
Well, I, th- I think it's really important to remember that this is a polling of Iowa caucus goers. Already, we're talking about a very small population of people. Hawkeye Stadium in uh, Iowa City, Iowa, the location of the Iowa Hawkeyes, has a capacity of 69,750, and Trump got fewer than would fit in that stadium. This is a very specific group of people. We are talking about a very specific group of people, and that's Trump's base. And asking Trump's base, would you still vote for him even if he was convicted of a crime, is like asking me, a Michigan fan, would you still support the University of Michigan even if Michigan weren't the coolest, best place in the history of collective time and national champion? This is a fandom. These are fans. These are fans of a particular political figure. It has nothing to do with conservatism. Conservatism has what that meant. Um, I've talked to a bunch of people about this very subject, what that used to mean, what that means individually, what that means the group has changed, but that's not important here. I think that we need to be thinking about this the same way you think of this as people who are big fans of Taylor Swift or big fans of any other cultural entity. This has less to do with politics and more to do with being fans. Of course, you're going to be supportive of the person you're a fan of, even if they've committed a crime. Of course, you think everything they say is true because you're fans of them. It's not about indicating whether or not you believe in the inherent truth of that statement. It is reflecting on, I am a fan of this person. Ergo, I am going to say the thing that illustrates that I am a fan of this person. There was a woman who was interviewed a couple of days ago before the caucus who said that you know she'd walked over glass to vote for him. And of course she would say that because that's what you say when you're a fan of someone. And I think it's, it's really important to make sh- this very clear that this is not the group of people that will be determining the presidential election in November. The people who will be determining the presidential election in November are the people who are not watching this and who do not care. The people who are, for lack of a better term, normal. People who watch football, people who are paying attention to any number of things going on in their personal and personal lives rather than in politics. So much of our political lives have been spent focusing on the people who are at the bleeding edge of fandom. I'll just chime in. Look, I fundamentally agree, and I think Ron made a good point. This thing is so leveraged up that 60,000 people who come out in a blizzard, and I was there, by the way, driving out to Cedar Rapids where I attended two caucuses in Johnson County. The only one Nikki won by one vote, I'll claim no Chicago-style involvement, the only county she actually won, in both of the precincts I was in was interesting. Trump lost both of them, and DeSantis narrowly. That's because you, you were there, Mike. Yeah, no, no. It cost me $40, but but Clem's got a new gun rack in the pickup, and we carried the county. No, ser- seriously, it was a squishier county as Johnson, which is traditionally not a Trump county. But the point is, a very small number of people are able to start the dominoes moving, and the reason that's working is Trump is the gravity that's pulling the dominoes down. They're happy with it. A year ago, there were real doubts. And I think part of the Trump recipe to have so easily captured the GOP, other than all the dark, evil Trump stuff, and I would add that I like the idea of changing the party rules to require walking across broken glass to vote for Trump. I think that would be a good addition to the process. The Biden's collapsed politically. When I was out in April, all the hacks told me, oh, my God, we could lose. The people are thinking about a change. This DeSantis guy seems to be interesting. This Tim Scott guy, whoever it might be. Then Biden folded in on himself, at least in perception. Nobody in the base think, even a lot of the regular Republicans in Iowa, 
think that Trump would lose to Biden now. They, they think Biden's a feather rather than to be knocked over. So there's no risk in Trump. That may be wrong. We have a whole campaign to go. Trump will be Trump. But uh, it, it, and it is, I agree with the cultish stuff too. Um, so, you know, it is a hard course to change. The po- party's gone populist wackadoodle, and that's who Trump is. He's the atomic clock of that, and it's what they want. So they're going to get it. I would say also it's, again, the primary experience is so removed from how most people experience politics. And I also think it's worth remembering that we are in a very strange position in which Biden is a deeply unpopular president, but Democrats keep winning down ballots. Uh, there was just an election, I think, just a couple of days ago that Ron DeSantis you know, thought that he would have, he would win that election in Florida. And then win in Iowa, and neither of those things happen. So we're in a very we're in an interesting environment in which the president is unpopular, but the president's issues are actually quite popular. We've seen that happen with abortion rights, the abortion policy of seven percent state uh, uh, in different states, and so it'll be interesting to see how we have this dis- disunion between how the president does and how the party does. And I think that what a lot of people seem to be betting on, and I've got, you know, I'm talking to pollsters, is that a lot of people think that this won't be the race. They really do believe that there is going to be a deus ex machina event in which somehow the skies parch and Trump and Biden are removed from this mortal plane and they don't have to worry about it anymore. And I, I really do think that it'll be interesting to see once people realize, one, they have to experience Donald Trump again. I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about him in a very selective way. But also the fact that, like, yeah, this is what you're getting. You get it. This is it. This is all you have. So I want to talk about some specific issues and sort of slide towards the general election. And may, maybe I, I want to get every, I have a view on the question I'm about to ask, but I want to get everybody's take on this. And maybe we'll start with Ron. How do you explain the sheer disjunction between the actual condition of the economy and Biden's job approval ratings, both on the economy and in general? Well, certainly, if you look at the numbers, uh, Biden has done very well on the economy. Uh, We have low unemployment. We have a low inflation. There are a lot of great economic indicators. But we can't assume that people are voting based on facts and based on numbers. Uh, The reality is that people often base their vote on emotion. How do they feel about that candidate? How do they feel about that party? And that's so so much of what explains Trump's success. So Democrats always seem to think that if you just put the facts in front of people, and if you just show them the statistics and explain to them why they are in alignment and why Biden may be good for them, that that will change that voter's mind. But that is often not the case. So right now, people are not happy from an emotional point of view, I think, with Biden. Although once we have solidified what this race is, and as as Jane said, that it becomes really clear that it's about these two candidates, about Biden and about Trump, they're going to all of a sudden get renewed with a memory of what a Trump presidency was like. And uh, I think you will perhaps see a different viewpoint that people have about Biden as well. So, Tim, how do you explain the difference between the reality of the economy and the way people perceive it, especially given that they say their own finances are in good shape? 
I don't think it's all emotions and uh, disconnect. I think there's some of that. And I think there's some a partisan element to this, right? I think that uh, a certain percentage of the electorate uh, who is consuming only conservative media has become a fan, as Jane put it, of Trump uh, is going to say everything's bad uh, because you know that that supports uh, their need to support their man. And I think that there was always a little bit of that, that, that but I think that the number of people who are, are responding to these polls in purely partisan uh, matter uh, has has increased significantly over the past 10 years. Uh, I also think, though, that inflation is uniquely pernicious and, and uniquely problematic for politicians. If you look around the globe, basically every politician, basically every leader around the globe has low approval ratings with with very few exceptions. You know, if you have an unemployment rate of 8%, like that affects 8% of people, I guess a little bit more than 8% because it affects their family and affects their friends. But like there are some people who are going about their lives on unemployment at, at 6, 7, 8%. When inflation is up and, and everybody's grocery bills up and everybody's dinner bills up, that affects everybody. And it's an, it's an annoying reminder every day. Every time you go to the coffee shop, you're annoyed. Every time you're at the grocery store, you're annoyed. And so I think there's a low level of annoyance in the economy that is pervading everyone. And that's before you get to the fact that in order to fix the inflation problem, we had to uh, raise interest rates. And so anyone who has an aspiration to move or to buy a new house, all th- that is seems very, very expensive right now um, because of the because of interest rates, because of housing prices. So I think that there's some reality mixed in there. I think that there's a hope that there will be a lag effect, you know, as people kind of get used to and, and become less annoyed with their grocery bill. You know, particularly because a lot of people's wages have gone up as well over the course of this of, of this period, and hopefully um, that lag occurs sometime between now and November. Yeah, well, there is some historical evidence that it takes six to nine months for the reality of a changing economy to sink in. Yeah, people forget that in the fall of '83, for example, uh, Walter Mondale was eight points ahead of Ronald Reagan, and a year later, it was morning in America. But, Doug, you want to weigh in, and then, Jane, I'll go on to the next question. Look, I think Biden in history has a a pretty good one term, except what are we doing in Ukraine? What's going on in the Middle East? Uh, Are people feeling uh, more anxious, more fearful? They are, um, just because of world events. But I think on the economy, uh, Biden's just going to have to do a lot better. Uh, I, I, I did some commentary when Biden went to Valley Forge in Pennsylvania, kind of doing an old style speech, a lot of American flags behind him and trying to remind everybody about January 6th. And what's going to be on the ballot is the difference between democracy or authoritarianism. That's what you're voting on. And I thought it was a great speech. It was written well, he delivered it well, but it had about a one day uh, media cycle and it's disappeared from memory. And Biden's schedule is very sparse. He, due to age due to perhaps strategy due to staff but he's not seeming to be this energizing galvanizing um figure right now uh, if he goes somewhere there isn't this sort of kinetic excitement and i think you got we got to dig deeper into the failures of american democracy or put this way what we're using fan and i talked about you know own talking about a celebrity and the power of celebrity and influencers in this political cycle right now. And Biden in that way doesn't seem to have some factor going on for him. You know, he's not a great orator. He doesn't give the good, quick bites. 
and the cameras are running everywhere every moment. So what is going to be his bite is him, him looking lost in a room and that's going to circulate in a viral fashion. So the question for Biden, I think is kind of what you, you guys are just getting at. How do they prove that the economy is really great? Uh, it's going to be a big piece. Uh, but they, Bidenomics is not a term that worked. I'm sorry. They obviously were piggybacking on Reaganomics and plug out we're going to do Bidenomics in some way. I've kept thinking of, you know, Gerald Ford's uh, whip inflation now buttons. I mean, I'm not envisioning mobs holding Bidenomics signs and creating this sort of momentum. Um, maybe at the Democratic convention, they will. So I think it's about Biden finding something that he's associated with. I do presidential history. And when you say a name, what do you think of? Right now, if somebody says, Joe Biden, what do you think of? And the answers aren't really good. Most people aren't saying, oh, he really helped our economy. Thank God for Joe. Or he's really tackled that beast of climate change. People in politics might talk about infrastructure. and But then there's the memory of getting out of Afghanistan and didn't go well. And, and the craziness of the world at our time. And we're no longer on, as you all know, a hourly news cycle. It's about every second things are changing. And Biden seems from another era. So he's going to have to really motivate young people. Women have to get a new crusade going in an, in an incredible way. And he's going to have to re-energize himself with the black community, which I don't think he has, because Trump is going to peel off some black voters, not many, but enough that it could it could cost a state like Georgia or could cost a state like um, Michigan. I'm not feeling Biden adding voters. I'll close by saying, it's going to be neck and neck. We all know that in the fall. If it's Biden and Trump, it's going to be back to you know, Gore Bush or whatever one you want to pick. It's going to be tight, and it's going to be a new cycle come the fall, but it's also going to be time for new internet mischief and you know tricks coming out um, from all places around the planet right now in the cyber world, and it's very hard hard to predict but as it's going the kind of momentum trump's getting as a celebrity an a-list celebrity he lands and he's got the hat and people are feeling somebody importance in their state that's not happening when biden and harris go somewhere right now unfortunately yeah then the one thing i would caution i would put here is that the press and the pundits largely derided biden in 2022 and for that matter in 2020 yeah. But certainly in 2022, for talking so much about democracy, so much about January 6th, and so much about Dobbs, and then the, the, the overthrow of Roe v. Wade, and then the exit polls indicated that those were the big factors that stopped the red tsunami from happening. So I'm not sure he's making a mistake talking about democracy. Jay? Not, not, not a mistake. It just has to be, a, I think, a, a larger plate of, of things that there. He's, he's going doubling down on that for all the right reasons. But I don't think the economic message is getting through. Yeah, Jane, what about the economic that this disjunction between economic perception and economic reality? I think it's going to take some time. Uh, I think that the events of the pandemic were so dislocating for so many people. But for some people, they had the best economic time of probably their adult lives during the pandemic, in part because of some of the checks that they received. And I think that there's a real disconnect between how people are doing and how people feel as if they're supposed to be doing. But I will also say, um, it was interesting, Doug, that you talked a lot, you mentioned talking about the pandemic, that so much of Ron DeSantis's campaign was about COVID and talking about the pandemic. 
And it didn't work because I think for most Americans, we're doing the thing that we did after the Spanish flu epidemic. We're just never going to talk about it again. We are just going to wander into the future and never discuss it. And we will all move on in the way Americans do. Like Midwesterners, we will just bury it under lasagna and never talk about it again. It's going to be interesting to see moving forward because I do think that you're actually starting to see more. There's an Axios poll today saying that people are actually feeling pretty optimistic about their own financial perception. It reminds me of that polling that always shows that people like their congressmen, but they hate Congress. But I also think, like, let's, let's just recognize that there's a lot we don't know. We expected a red wave in 2022 and that didn't happen. There's a lot that can happen between now and November, especially because I think that One thing that I really want to avoid is the other two things, one specifically with Trump and one with just punditry. The pundits fallacy is believing that whatever is happening is because of the thing that you happen to care a lot about. And what I find to be a Trumpian fallacy is that gravity doesn't apply to Trump, that Trump can do literally anything he wants and it will always work for him because of, I don't know, an act of God. And I think that there are a lot of people for whom 2016 was such a, and I think it was for me as well, was such a mind-altering experience that since then, every election he's participated in, even tangentially, has seemed as if he's just going to be able to keep you know, growing momentum and all the gravity will turn towards him and will obviously win. When actually Donald Trump hasn't won an election since 2016. You know, you could even go back to the special election in 2017 uh, with Corey Stewart, America's greatest carpetbagger, uh, the midterms in 2018, 2020 election, which he notably lost, the specials in 2021, the midterms in 2022, and now we're still on a losing streak. I mean, even if you think about this as being people who Trump has supported, people who Trump has helped to get elected, people who Trump came to events with, he has lost all of those. And so I really want to make sure that we avoid the the idea that whatever Trump does must work because it worked that one time. I also think that some people may have, if you haven't been paying attention, I know, I'm sure Tim has, but if you haven't been paying attention to Trump on Truth Social or just in general, he sounds insane. Like, he sounded insane to me in, like, 2015, 2016, but there was, like, kind of a, a veneer of populism. It sounded kind of like if you let Pat Buchanan get into the liquor cabinet, but now it it doesn't sound like that anymore. He sounds utterly disjointed, utterly untethered from the actual issues that even his people who are his biggest supporters care about. McKay Coppins had a great piece in The Atlantic talking about how people should go to a Trump rally. And a lot of people saw the headline and said, no, understandably. But I think he got at something that, like, it's changed. It's, you know, even the people who are the biggest fans of him are leaving after, like, the first half because he just sort of rambles about things. And it's very disconcerting. And I think that part of why I actually don't mind when people air his speeches on television is because he he doesn't, he's not Rasputin. He does not have that impact on people. What he sounds like is a person who you would avoid on the street. And so I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how people are confronted with actual Trump, not imaginary Trump. Because I, I've been I've been really struck by how even the fact that he was president for four years, people have still been able to construct a version of Trump in which he's um there's a you know, this kind of online thing of like maybe Trump would be secretly pro-Palestinian. Or maybe Trump would be this or that when you're like, when you're confronted with the actuality, it's like, no, 
this is this is what you've got. This is who you get. And I think that there are a lot of people within the Biden campaign who are saying like, yeah, like anything sounds better than what we have right now. Um, there's been all those polls that are like, oh, a generic Democrat cleans up. Well, you know, find us one. So I think that it's going to be it's very difficult to avoid taking 2016 as being the template for the future. But I also think it's worth remembering that this is different. 2024 is different. The issues going forward are different. And these candidates are going to be different than they were when 2016 and 2024. And specifically to Trump, his issues are the 2020 election. That's what he cares about. That's what he thinks about. He's not talking about working class issues. He even wasn't talking about that in 2020. If you remember all of his conversations about the beautiful voters, I think that it's going to be really interesting and a really difficult to avoid trying to make the past prologue, but it just isn't. And it's, it's important to think about this moment at this time with these candidates as who they are right now. Okay. I want to get to a couple other substantive issues and leave time for audience questions. Aid to Ukraine is currently stalled. Aid to Israel is under attack. And the Speaker of the House uh, says he doesn't want to do anything about the border until Trump is president. What changed once stalwart U.S. support for Israel and Reagan-esque opposition to Russian aggression? What are the consequences of that in policy and political terms? And in terms of the border, is Speaker Johnson more interested in having an issue to run on than in solving the problem. I mean, Tim, you can start. Uh, well, the last one's easy. So yes, uh, I'll give a short answer to that. Uh, Mike Johnson's more interested in the issue than, um, than solving the border. It was interesting to see John Thune in the Senate actually bring some facts in this week and say, well, actually, the opposite is true. If we actually care about the border, we could never get this deal under Trump because the Democrats would never go along with some of the draconian border policies that they're willing to go along with now to get this deal done if Biden wasn't president. So I think that there still is hope that the Senate will cut a deal and then that some pressure can be brought to bear on the House. But we'll see. I'm deeply pessimistic about Ukraine. Um, The answer to your question about what happened uh, to get us to this point where it would be the Republican Party is like basically the weak link in the Western world as far as supporting Ukraine is twofold. It's about what everything about our politics has been the last 20 years, my adult life, Iraq and Trump. I mean, uh, I just think that the uh, unhappiness with the Iraq war among the kind of more blue collar populist elements of the Republican base, um, belatedly, obviously, and then and then the demagoguery of Trump has turned this party, you know, from the bottom up, with the exception of Trump, into a very isolationist party um, and, and kind of going back to the Republican Party roots from the 30s, really. And so the strain was always there. It's not that new, but it's been reanimated uh, because of Iraq and Trump. You know, and I think that uh, when you talk to Republican voters, you go to rallies, Trump rallies. I mean, this is this is now one of the top issues they bring up. It's immigration, wokeism, and not getting involved in foreign conflicts. Uh, the Ukraine thing has the added wrinkle of being kind of tied up in the Trump impeachment. And like there are a lot of conspiracies out there in the Republican base about, about Ukrainian corruption. So I'm mildly o- optimistic about a immigration deal that comes in the senate i'm pe- extremely pessimistic about ukraine I, I don't i don't it's hard to see where the funding comes from for ukraine at this point uh, anyone else have anything on that any disagreement no, i don't want to move on to another issue go ahead uh, i'll chime in with two quick things one is if you ask the uh, typical american even typically well-educated americans to find ukraine on the map uh good luck not going to happen for most if you ask them who is the name of the uh, president 
of Ukraine, Zelensky, of course, uh, how many could actually name him? So I think Americans, for the most part, are relatively disengaged from what's happening in, in that part of the world. And also attention span, while it was number one in the news for a long time, isn't now. And so the imperative, I think, for a lot of American voters in terms of supporting Ukraine has been seemingly eroded. Uh, when it comes to issues of uh, support for Israel, I think that definitely we've seen among younger voters a real diminishment of that. At the same time, you look at what Bernie Sanders brought before the Senate just the other day in terms of uh, trying to change uh, how aid to Israel, much of it is, by the way, not aid, but actually purchase of weapons. And he got just 11 votes, including his own, in the Senate. So I don't know that that speaks to any kind of erosion at this time. Doug, I want to ask you about another issue. Uh, your book, Silent Spring Revolution, is a compelling, definitive study of the origins of the environmental movement, which were surprisingly bipartisan compared to what we see today. Today, climate change is often a sharply partisan issue. What happened? Well, you know, in American history, we had uh, really three environmental movements, although conservation was the word, uh, one under Theodore Roosevelt from 1901 to 1909, one under Franklin D. Roosevelt from 1933 to ostensibly 45, but it really ended in 42. And then Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon years, the long 60s. So, and it was bipartisan. I mean, Richard Nixon had no interest in the environment, but things like the Santa Barbara oil spill, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire started, and the way the media started covering the environment as a main game front parlor issue, it started becoming deeply bipartisan to the point, Bob, that in actually it was this December, just days ago, um, the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. You know what that passed the U.S. Senate by the Endangered Species Act? 92 to nothing in the Senate. Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency, not a weak one. He put William Ruckel's house and it had teeth, basically busting polluters, going after corporations with Nixon. Don't worried about it, but greenlighting it. Nixon bans DDT. It's a different Republican Party in terms of the environment. What happened? What happened is in 1973, that Arab oil embargo hit, and it started becoming not just about an environmental wave. It got shut down by the discussion of energy, environment, energy, environment, which do you pick? And the energy lobby coalesced along with the Lewis Powell memo, meaning groups on the right started being hatched, uh, Heritage Foundation and Cato for Libertarians, American Enterprise Institute, and you know, the, the melons, and it's an endless group of anti-environmental, conservative, pro-business, pro-chamber of commerce types that started fighting against environmental regulations, which they thought as being socialism. Uh, uh, you know, who, what company wants the federal government telling them, you know, any moment looking at their books that they're polluting a river or contaminating an environment. And we haven't been able to have a fourth wave after 73. We thought with Al Gore, maybe a climate change in 2000, it still had a bipartisan feel to it. Barack Obama has personally told me his biggest frustration was climate change. He tried, tried, tried. It just comes up short, and you're seeing Biden doing what he can. I mean, look at what he's trying to do. Look what we're doing with electric cars right now. But, you know, it's on a tipping point. And, of course, the problem is global. And, you know, what do we do on these climate talks? But what is, what's China doing? What's India doing? 
So I, unfortunately, uh, we're, we're climbing makes the news when uh, there's some shocking event, but you can't always, the media doesn't always want to say that hurricane is because of climate, that wildfire is because of climate. So it's sort of an interesting thing. It's consuming our minds, climate change right now, and in many ways, but I'm not sure it's going to be a top um, bore issue um, on the, in the coming debates. I mean, Trump's basically saying it's a hoax. Biden is trying to juggle things both ways. And uh, it's still back to the energy, the oil gas lobby versus the environmental nonprofits in a kind of 50-50 battle. But eventually we'll get there. There will be a fourth wave, but it's got to be global, not just Americanized. We hear about violence all the time in the news. Yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. So I'm going to turn over to audience questions here. The first one from George Sheff, and I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, if Iowa has been wrong 15 of 18 times since 1972, who should feel best about Trump's winning the Iowa caucuses on Monday, in your opinion? It's an honest question, he says, although I'm also looking for something witty from Mike. Mike? Well, let me make sure I understand the question, and then I'll try to get off a joke on it. It is who should feel better over, who I don't should feel best about Trump. Who should feel best about Trump winning the Iowa caucuses? Putin and Z. Good night for both of them. Good night for the Chinese. Good night for the Russians, because we're tangled in domestic politics and we're doing this. I, you know, you can argue, even though the press lines is a sign of strength for Trump that he's crushing all opposition. The problem being that the opposition are trying to use that old Russian proverb. They're trying to wash the bear without getting his fur wet. So that's a hell of a way to oppose somebody by not running against him. But if you look, and I know it was alluded to earlier by Jane and others, the numbers in Iowa, 700,000, I think Ron made this point, registered Republicans, and barely one out of seven made it to the caucus is not a sign of the wider enthusiasm. If Biden were in better shape politically in the general election, he'd crush Trump. The problem is right now, the threshold decision most people make, keep or fire the incumbent. And as of today, it's fire Joe Biden, then figure it out. And Trump might slide through. The scariest polling number has been this way for a year. Do you hate Trump, general election voters? Yes. You know, you want to fire Biden? Yes. Who is better in the economy of these two guys you don't hate? Trump by 10 plus points. That number, and we talked about a little, is still the same on election day than I, I fear for Biden. So, you know, as far as seriously, this outcome, it's good for Trump, which means it's bad for everybody else. Anyone else want to weigh in on this? Because I think maybe the guy who feels best about this is Biden. Oh, Rob. No, Bob. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. if, you look, if you look at the numbers, it's the person that he has the best chance to defeat. I guess. I don't know. It's too risky. The risk is too high. I agree with that. That's the problem. If you're rooting for anybody, you should have been rooting for DeSanctimonious. No personality 
and and not pop not uh, popular enough to do a coup. You can't imagine a you can't imagine people with the sanctimonious flags charging the Capitol. You know he doesn't inspire that kind of loyalty. So Biden's feelings about it does shouldn't matter really. Trump's going to be the nominee because that's what Trump what Republican voters want. But I don't think there should be any reason to root for him. I think that Biden should be rooting for Jack Smith to save us. Biden should be rooting for Elon to show up with the time machine so he can go back a year and not run. <laughs> Mike, that horse left the barn a long I know. I know. And I, I, I know Biden was selfish. I told you when you kept saying that, that it wasn't going to happen. No, I never uh, predicted it would happen. It just ought to happen. Biden ought to say, you know what? This is not a regular election where if I lose, okay, I've got Nikki Haley or some dumb Republican I don't like. No, no, no. We, we we have a Bond villain as president who's pretty much said, yeah, this democracy thing, let's wrap it up, me, me, me. And Biden should have done what, what a lot of American kids have done, which is put their personal interest aside, grabbed the rifle, and got out in Anzio Beach. The right thing for the country was not to put us in this risky situation. But I didn't think he would, and he didn't, but he should have. I got a couple more questions that I want to get to, but Jane, you want to weigh in on this? What I'm struck by is that the alternatives to Biden, because I've heard a bunch of them, and I'm interested in how that there is always this perfect alternative to Biden until you find the alternative to Biden and everybody hates them. Like, I just keep thinking about how, like, oh, you know, it could have been Gretchen Whitmer. It could have been Josh Shapiro. It could have been Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom would be funny to me personally because he is unlikable in a very different way, and that would just be a fascinating battle. But I do think that this is what we've got. This is what we're set with. And I think from Biden's perspective, he would say, like, I won the last election. Let me do it again. But please continue. I'm interested in the in the next question. Well, the next question is kind of an interesting one. It's from someone who's anonymous Uh, regarding the COVID-19 restrictions. Didn't most of those come under the Trump administration? And why doesn't he get blamed for it? It's been really interesting to see how the COVID experience has managed to allied Trump entirely regarding vaccines, regarding everything about COVID, which all happened in 2020. It is interesting how so much of it was under the Trump administration. I would actually say that um, Operation Warp Speed was probably Trump's greatest accomplishment, getting the vaccine out. And now every other Republican, and I would assume him too, We'll now all try to pretend like that was the worst thing that ever happened because the vaccine has made, I don't know, us turn into werewolves. Funny thing about that is Trump, at the beginning of his campaign, got up at rallies a couple of times and tried to take credit for the vaccine and for Operation Warp Speed, and he got booed by people in the audience. He's never mentioned it again. It should be noted, by the way, that one of the things that uh, DeSantis has been campaigning on is uh, arguing that a lot of the restrictions regarding COVID were in fact Trump and he's not taken responsibility for it. So that's exactly what DeSantis has been arguing. I think that uh, Dr. Fauci has been made into a Dr. Strangelove-like figure <laughs> on, on the internet. And uh, you're going to see Republicans hammering on Fauci uh, this spring as much as the Hunter Biden issue they're going to be hammering on. And uh, look, Biden's, here's the, the glass half full and glass half empty for Biden, in my view, in political history. I go back to 1948. Harry Truman was in trouble. I mean, nobody thought that he would be able to win because they, there are all these splinter groups. Um, Strom Thurmond created the Dixiecrat Party. Henry Wallace, powerful guy, Eleanor Roosevelt at his side, you know, created, you know, the um, Progressive Party. 
Uh, but you, you had a Democratic Party splintering. I think these third party candidates make this a very wild west coming up for guys like us and people like us to decide is Manchin running on a no labels or something? Let's see, man. Uh, is Bobby Kennedy Jr., Mr. Anti Vax, if he's 10%, it's going to hurt Trump. But if he gets up to 15 or 20%, people just sick with of these and ours, that's going to come out of Biden. And then Cornell West is picking up some of the disaffected liberals over the um, Israel-Gaza. Truman won that election. I think Biden could win even with that. But you're not seeing anybody on the right. You know, and those are you know three Democrats right now that are broken off. And nobody on the right's creating that kind of third-party fear. And so uh, I don't know how um, how this can play out. Because one, you know, we know what happened with Ralph Nader in Florida in 2000. I mean, one point here, two points there, and it could do damage to Joe Biden. I certainly do know about Ralph oh, yeah. Nader in Florida <laughs> in 2000. Uh, so, By the way, just in, just quickly, Bob, if I can, in the spirit of dark irony and God having a wickedly cruel sense of humor and just to drive poor Bob crazy, I wouldn't rule out Trump picking RFK Jr. as his VP. Yeah, it's possible. I wouldn't rule it out. And that'll be the twisted, sick end of the COVID story. By the way, Trump doesn't get enough credit on COVID because if you had it and needed to get a hospital bed and you couldn't, if you would drink enough bleach, you could definitely get the hospital bed. You'd be yeah, well, in a coma, yeah. but you'd get the bed. He'd solve yeah, the problem. The, yeah, there's a new study that shows uh, using hydroxychloroquine probably killed 17,000 people. I'm going to thank all our panelists. It's a great way to kick off the semester. Uh, and I want to thank our audience as well. We invite you to watch our next event, which we're sponsoring with our partners, Fox 11 and Politico on September 22nd at 6 p.m. The first debate among the top four contenders for California's open U.S. Senate seat. Steve Garvey, Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Adam Schiff will all debate on the stage at Bovard Auditorium. By the way, you can watch that on Fox where you can watch it on Facebook Live. Then on January 30th, Please join us for our annual Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics, which will focus on the 2024 election and some significant underlying trends in our politics. The conference will feature leading political and journalistic figures from across the nation and will again be co-sponsored by Politico. It will begin at Town & Gown on campus at 9.30 a.m., will end at 5 p.m., and lunch will be served. You may also join us virtually for the conference and view it on Zoom or Facebook Live. So thank you to our terrific panelists, and everybody, have a great rest of the week. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.